So you may have uh, missed at the beginning there because we had some music that kind of came through uh, with that video at the very beginning, but that was Taylor Carter. And uh, I believe it had picked up by uh, the point where she was kind of sharing about what she's got going on, but she's a UT grad. She's been involved with the Baptist Collegiate Ministry, and uh, she's now going to next year be their uh, summer missionary. And so we, uh, as a church, I'm sure I can say for all of you, and I can certainly say for Pastor John and I, we're just immensely proud with, with a good kind of righteous pride uh, of our young people, of what God is doing in the midst of our middle, high school, from kids ministry all the way up, from the preschool all the way up, just what God is doing at Ridgeview. And of course, churches aren't as likely to produce students like uh, Isaac and, and Taylor and, and others that we'll hear about uh, in, the, in the coming weeks, and many of whom are sitting here uh, this morning uh, without ministries in place kind of all along the way. And so if you have served or helped make uh, it possible for these students to be where they are, uh, we're grateful. About that, Pastor John and I would just say, Psalm 118, 23, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Because I have to tell you, it's pretty rare, church. I mean, if you, if, you, if you don't know that, if you've not been to another church here recently, it's not like churches are just producing this overabundance of godly, faithful, want-to-serve, want-to-be, on-mission uh, college students and young people. And that is what we have going on here. So I encourage you to get behind her work. There's great work being done at the BCM uh, at ETSU. Uh, you can serve and get involved and, and give there. Uh, there's just a, a ton going on. My wife and I are BCM products of, of ETSU. Uh, so I think that counters the myth. There's a, a myth, I think, about college students and high school students that they don't want the stricture of denomination. I think that's a, a flat lie. I think it's false. Because students want to know that they're learning the truth. They don't want to dilly-dally in a bunch of stuff that's not true. And one of the things that our denomination does together, churches cooperate to say, this is what we believe together. It's the Baptist faith and message. And so I don't think that students want away from that kind of thing. In fact, I, want, I think students want deeper in. They want community. They want to be involved in something that's bigger than themselves. And that's what's going on on our campuses. So I encourage you to get involved and get behind it. We have so many young people that are doing so many great things. And for that, we are so grateful. Well, for the past few weeks, uh, Pastor John has been leading us through a series on what if, and, and he kind of finished his portion of it off, and, and Carl Burnt did an amazing job expositing Philippians 4, 6, and 7 this morning in the 8.30 hour. He was talking about anxiety, and uh, so that really prepared me for this hour, uh, because I'm always anxious to open uh, the word for you and to fill in for somebody that is a giant like Pastor John is. Uh, but he told me I had complete freedom in, in where I would take you uh, this morning, which is to say he left it up to the Holy Spirit. And I, I had not even originally intended for this day when I knew about it uh, long ago that I'd be filling in it in the 1030 hour. I didn't expect to be here or to try to continue this series, but this is where the Spirit led. So this is where we're going to be. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 135. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew in front of you. I encourage you to pull that out and turn it almost basically to the middle, to the 135th Psalm, where our what if question this morning is going to be, Ridgeview, my brothers and sisters, what if we cast down our idols? What if we cast down our idols? 
In his book, Counterfeit Gods, which I highly recommend to you, Tim Keller summarizes the biblical description of an idol and the devastation that comes along with them in the following definition. What is an idol? He says, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So he follows that up with a strategy for recognizing what an idol might be in your life. How can we identify these idols, Arbo Keller? Well, he responds and says this, a counterfeit God is anything so central or essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And so I'm going to give you a moment to meditate in that, just 20 seconds or so. And I want you to really ask yourself, what's that thing in your life that if it were gone tomorrow, you would think, I don't know if I want to live anymore. Answer that question. Fill in the blank. Might be multiple things. You see, the tricky thing about idols, and I want you to keep whatever you filled in the blank with, keep it present to your mind's eye throughout the morning. Because the tricky thing about idols is that even good things can become idols. Our hearts are idol factories. Our idols don't always come to us bathed in blood and with the attending stench of death and malice. No, in fact, they often don't. Our idols can take the throne of our hearts with peanut butter on their little faces. Our idols can come to us with ringtones and features and convenience and tools. Our idols can take the throne of our hearts with the roar of the crowd and a trophy presentation. Our idols can come to us with a bonus and a corner office. Our idols can come to us with engagement rings. Our idols can come to us as elephants or donkeys. Enshrined in colors that fill us when rightly ordered with a good kind of pride. And that motivate, again, when rightly ordered, a healthy kind of honor. But idols can't ride donkeys. We'll see why in our text. But kings can. And there's a king who came to us on a donkey, but it wasn't an ideological or a political donkey. No, this king destroys idols. He eviscerates idols. He vaporizes them. He kicks in their doors and drags them into the bright wide open and destroys them with a holy and righteous roar, a consuming fire. Ridgeview, what if we cast down our idols? Let's answer that question this morning in Psalm 135. Look at it with me. We're going to begin with verse 13. This is what God's word says to us. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They have mouths. They don't speak. They have eyes. They don't see. They have ears. They don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. House of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Well, let me give you the structure right out of the gate. Here's here's how it's going to break down this morning. In verses 13 and 14, we're going to see this question. What if we cast down our idols because of what is true about God? 
What if we let what's true about God motivate the casting down of our idols? Then in verses 15 through 17, we're going to see what if we cast down our idols because of what's true about our idols? I mean, what if we just look at our idols and how failingly pathetic they are and cast them down for that reason? And then in verses 18 through 21, we'll see the consequence of our choice, whether we choose to do it or whether we choose not to. Are you ready? Here we go. Let's start here. Verse 13. What if we cast down our idols because God is eternal? What if we cast down our idols because God is eternal? Verse 13, your name, O Lord, endures forever. I mean, why is the eternal nature of God important? It's one of those things about God we love to kind of throw around and, and dance around and, and make it. But have we ever, you ever thought about like what makes the fact that he's eternal such a big deal? Well, who wants to hope in something that will one day be no more? That's no real hope at all. We're not interested in temporary hope. Temporary hope is at best a band-aid on a grievous wound. We don't give engagement rings and drop to one knee and say, I promise I'll love you into the foreseeable future. Nobody does that. Marriage is hollow if that's your proposal. So it's essential that we see and appreciate and glory in the eternal nature of God. Why? Because God makes a big deal out of it. And because as a doctrine and as a reality, it's the anchor of so many of our profoundly good gifts. Let me just give you a few. First, if God is not eternal, then there is no creation. We ain't here. That's what the Bible tells us. Psalm 90 uh, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. They call that doctrine that it's, it's creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. He created the world out of nothing. There was only him. And then he brought the universe forth by the word of his power. And if he's not eternal, that can't happen. Secondly, if God's not eternal, then the second coming of Jesus ain't going to happen. It's negated. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Thirdly, if God's not eternal, then there's no eternal life to be bestowed by this salvation that Jesus offers and fully revealed at his coming. It's Romans 6.23, where the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ. And fourthly, if God is not eternal, then his word is compromised. And everything hangs on the word of God. Everything hangs on the word of God. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades. By the way, there are people, many people, who make an idol out of that out there. Many who will make an idol out of nature. Those things fade, God's word says, but the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus puts it this way. Heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So in short, pun intended, if God is not eternal, then our faith is futile. But can I tell you a truth this morning? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Forever. The Godhead everlasting. And that's just an abbreviated list of what hangs on God's eternal nature. But church, he is eternal. And that's a good enough reason by itself to cast down our idols. But I'll give you another. Secondly, the second part of verse 13, our God is transcendent. He's transcendent. You're renowned, O Lord, throughout 
all ages. What does it mean for something to be transcendent? For someone to be transcendent. Let me give you the definition. Here's the definition of transcendent. It's beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience. So if God's renown truly does go throughout all ages, and it does, then it stretches far beyond mere human experience because no human has experienced it fully in one lifetime, nor can they. Let me give you a few examples of this, of God transcending. Time cannot hold him. 2 Peter 3.8, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, is in a thousand years a day. Time can't hold God. Secondly, intelligence can't apprehend him. You can't fit it all up there. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or number three, space cannot restrain him. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the pit, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You know, Jonah got this really well. That's why when he cries out from the belly of the fish, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me out of the belly of the pit. I cried and you heard my voice. And you know what else Jonah says? That not even death can restrain God. Jesus told the generation that heard him and was alive for his ministry. He said, no sign will be given to your generation, but the sign of Jonah. Gone for three days and three nights and seen again upon the earth. Verse seven, Jonah says, when my life, same chapter two, when my life was fainting away, remember from Sheol, the pit, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And so then Jonah makes the connection in verse eight. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They give it over hand over fist. I don't want to forsake steadfast love, church. Let's not do that. Our God is transcendent. Shame on us for thinking that our tribe, whatever our tribe is, contains all of God. Shame on us for thinking our political party, whichever one it is, contains all of God. Shame on us for thinking that our mode or method of worship, whichever one we prefer, contains all of God. Shame on us for thinking only our nation contains all of God. Shame on us for thinking only my generation, fill in the blank with whatever generation you think is true here, contains more of God than another. No, God is transcendent. He will explode any box you put him in. But get ready for glory here. This, all that's well and good, but this is just like, he's not just transcendent, beyond, outside of, but also throughout. He's also imminent. He's present to us. To say that he's imminent is to say that he's, he's right here. He's at hand. He's knowable. He is there. If we'd started earlier in, verse, uh, or in Psalm 135, you'd see in verses 8 through 12, a literal list of what God had been doing. The times and places in which he was present to his people. He makes covenants. He keeps promises. He directs creation. He answers prayer. His sovereignty is evident in history. His providence is evident in his people. And not only all of this, but he stepped into our world. Transcendence in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. 
The Bible precisely nowhere equates looking at God's transcendence and seeing it for what it is with just this idea of, well, I guess we can't know him. Just pessimism or something like that, skepticism. By no means, we have his word and we have his son. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago and at many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the word. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's not talking about someone who's unknowable. So transcendence is glorious. That's reason enough to cast down our idols, as is the fact that he's eternal. But there's more. Let me give you another one. What if we cast down our idols because God is our defender? What if we cast down our idols because God is our defender? That's the first part of 14. And now this next two, we might look at directionally. In the first part of verse 14, we'll see how God cares about his people in a forward-facing way, protecting them. And in the second part of the verse, we'll see him turn around, as it were, and see his care among us. But let's focus on the first part of 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people. He will vindicate his people. Vindicate, as it's used here, really refers to judgment, as in to declare someone acquitted. Or protection, as in battle against enemies. So I've used defender, the Lord is our defender, because I think it encapsulates both of those ideas. We can see it first in a sense of a warrior protecting. This verse, this literal part of verse 14, is quoted in Hebrews 10.30. And what immediately follows there is worth noting. Listen to it. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, and here's the, the part from Psalms, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's only the living God who can vindicate, protect, and defend his people. He is fearsome and indomitable, undefeatable as an adversary to the wicked and, in, and to our great enemy, Satan. But we could also look at this in a legal sense, right? And you'll not find a better defense attorney in the cosmic courts than God himself, the judge who makes himself advocate. He comes down from his bench and becomes our advocate, that's good news. That's gospel for sinners. If you're not a sinner, that's not good news. But if you are, when the judge who has the ability to say, hell, comes down, condescends from his bench and stands beside you and says, I'll take it. I'll take it. That's really good news. First John 2, 1. Pastor John just had us in First John here recently. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous. The once and for all closing argument in this cosmic court that I've mentioned, this courtroom of the heavens, is that right there. That says every word. You just point to it and say, the defense rests. As glorious as God's eternal nature and total transcendence and his defending power are, it's the cross that is most essential to this last reason, the fourth reason in this passage to look at God and not idols. What if we cast down our idols because God is our savior? What if we cast down our idols because God is our savior? That's that second part of verse 14. The Lord will have compassion on his servants. 
This is both a descriptive statement and a prophetic statement. It's descriptive in that you can look at verses 8 through 12 and see how God did exactly this in a very practical way. Taking down the Pharaoh, Sihon, Og, and many other Canaanite kings and princes and rulers there in verse 8 through 12. So the psalmist is definitely writing about God's saving power and work in a practical sense. He just does these things. But there's also more going on here. It's also prophetic. The wording that's used here doesn't point to a general's rescue as the focus, but rather a shepherd's care and mercy and sacrifice. We hear echoes here of what's being conveyed in Matthew 9.36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. For they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And here's the divine irony. Follow this. Our rescue, mine, yours, our salvation, is achieved by the crucifixion of the sinless and perfect Son of God. Upon whom God poured his wrath against sin, and away from who God turns his face because of the ugly wretchedness of our sin that Jesus bore to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The father couldn't look upon the son with compassionate rescue as he does us, because his son lays his life down for the sin of the very people who had received God's compassion in the first place through his act. This though they, they deserved, I deserve, we deserve judgment and wrath and hell. And why has Jesus paid this price? Why has he accomplished our rescue by his blood, by the laying down of his own life? The passage tells you, because of love, because of compassion. It's the whole reason. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. By grace I have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. The gift of the God who saves. What if we cast down our idols because there's no God like our God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion towards sinners? We've spent more time here than we will on this next section on idols because idols don't compare to the glory of what we've just seen. But it's imperative that we do turn now and look to idols and see what they actually are. We need to lay them bare. So we've heard about why we should cast them down because of what's true about God. Now let's pivot and ask, why should we cast down idols because what's true about idols? Because of what's true about idols. And we'll start in verse 15, the first part. What if we cast down our idols because they're perishable? Because they die. Look at the text. It says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold. Therefore, they're perishable. Notice how what is true about idols inversely parallels what's true about God. So you've got God, eternal, idols, they die. They expire. They will one day be no more. In his commentary on the Psalms, Calvin writes, he declares that idolaters only draw down heavier judgments upon themselves the more zealous they are in the service of their idols. So the more you serve that idol, the more judgment you're heaping up. And that's a soul-crushing trade because you see everybody worships. Everybody worships. We're created to worship. Worship, you might say, is like a default system setting that you can't flip off. 
We're created to worship. Have you ever wondered why some people use the word waste when they speak about the years of their life they spent chasing other things before following Jesus? Like when they share their testimony? They may say something like, well, I wouldn't trade what's happened in my life because, you know, through it, I'm, you know, with my wife or, you know, I wouldn't have my kids or whatever the case may be. But I do regret that so much time was wasted. And waste is such a curious word to use. What you won't hear is something like this. I regret that so much time was unspent. That I was idle, I-D-L-E for so long. No, we all realized that we were chasing something. We were investing in something. It just turned out that since whatever it was, fill in the blank, was temporary and a tyrant, bent on our destruction and not our life, that it didn't compare to the matchless, eternal, life-giving Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you haven't, you haven't seen that until just now. Man, I've been wasting so much. Turn to Christ. Love this from C.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You do understand that, don't you, church? Like, we have to. We have to get this. Because Jesus isn't going to see all the money you've made and say, hey, let's smuggle a little bit of that in, in my kingdom. I probably need a little bit of your money. No, in Jesus' kingdom, we're invited to come and buy without price. He's not going to see the security and all the preparations you've amassed and say, oh, word, tote some of that into my kingdom. We need some of that. No, their sword is beaten into plowshare and spear into pruning hook. Jesus isn't going to ask you to pack some of your trophies or rings or plaques or sports awards to melt down later on to make a crown to throw at his feet. No, those crowns are given for winning a different kind of race. Where are you investing resources that have eternal potential into idols that are actually impotent. I want to ask that again. Where are you investing resources that have eternal potential into an idol that is actually impotent? If anything, our, our modern generation may be worthy of greater rebuke than any other generation in human history. You want to know why? All these heathen nations and people in the Old Testament, at least they believed when they bowed to that golden calf that it represented something big and great and grand in the beyond. It was, a, it was a small picture of something big and fantastic. It just didn't exist. Our modern culture doesn't even bother with that second step. They just worship the thing itself. We went to the movies on Thursday. Had a wonderful time together. I loved my bride. It was such a wonderful time. We went to see Maverick. We saw an ad before the film. And I want to read the, the words from this ad. Now keep in mind that if I were to play the commercial, you would hear this swelling music and these big grand imagery, and it's Nicole Kidman who's narrating and kind of carrying the ad with her presence. Here are the words, listen to these. We come to this place for magic. We come to AMC theaters to laugh, to cry, to care, because we need that, all of us. That indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim and we go somewhere we've never been before. Not just entertained, hear this, not just entertained, but somehow reborn together. Dazzling images on a huge silver screen, sound that I can feel. Somehow even heartbreak feels good and makes sense in a place like this. Our heroes feel like the best parts of us and stories feel perfect and powerful 
because here they are. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that Nicole Kidman is not inviting you to the movies. She's inviting you to worship. She's inviting you to worship. If you deleted all the specific references just to theater, sound, and picture, she could well be talking about an invitation to church. It's no mistake. It's no accident. You're being invited to worship entertainment, movies, and movie stars. So let me charge you, Ridgeview, interrogate, ask questions of what you watch and consume and ask yourself, what is it telling me to worship? Is it any wonder why McDonald's slogan for the longest time was, I'm loving it? I guess they skipped over, I'm tasting it or I'm enjoying it. No, they want you to worship. What? The little feeling you get when you sink your teeth into a double cheeseburger, which God gave us double cheeseburgers, and they're glorious, but they don't deserve our worship. And neither does a chain restaurant. Habakkuk 2, 18 through 20. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to the wooden thing, awake, or to the silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's a reason Pinocchio is a, is a fairy story. Wood doesn't wake up, people. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Idols are not only perishable, though, church. Here's another good reason to cast them down. They're fathomable. We can wrap our minds around them. The psalmist points out that idols are the work of human hands. Rando Commando up here does great work around the church. I've never seen anything he does, though, and thought, I can't even understand it. Wow, what even is that? No, I can say like those are really cool barn doors on the kitchen and they look awesome. You did a great job, by the way. Had help, there you go, see? We're all of us limited. The ramifications of this seemingly obvious but nevertheless incredibly important observation are massive. Here's number one. Created things can't exceed in any real important sense the humans that create them. So the irony of idol worship is, catch this, that we're always worshiping something that's less than even we are. Not only does it not hold up to God, it doesn't even hold up to us. That bike or that boat or that four-wheeler or whatever, that trophy, it doesn't even stack up against a human, much less God. I'll give you a quick example. Pornography, a perverse, perverse creation of mankind, cannot and will not ever stack up against the beauty and the mystery of your wife or your husband's touch. It won't. It's a lie. It can't give you what you're after. And it never will. Or look at it another way. Ask yourself why, as we become more reasoned and more enlightened about our idol worship, now we tend towards things that are bigger and deeper and wider than we are. You might say we've moved from golden calves to Grand Canyons. And I understand why people feel overwhelmed by the Grand Canyon. I've been there. But the Grand Canyon can't do math. The Grand Canyon can't care for a child. It won't lay down its life for another. It's not capable of reason or judgment. It's beautiful, yes, and majestic even, but it's not unfathomable. It's a river that wound its way down into the rock. The first movie that Jennifer and I ever went to as a couple was a baseball movie called Fever Pitch. In this movie, the main character, Ben Reitman, is a massive Boston Red Sox fan. 
Like to the point where any normal person would say, man, that's kind of silly and childish. His whole apartment is decked out in Red Sox stuff. He has adult-sized Red Sox jammies. And he finally meets a girl who you, you already know is going to wreck shop on all this nonsense. He meets a girl, Lindsay Meeks, who begins to take over territory in Ben's life. And soon enough, the conflict arises when Lindsay wants more of Ben than he can give her responsibility, provision, a life, if he wants to maintain his unfettered devotion to the Red Sox. And Ben's a school teacher and he coaches a middle school baseball team. And as he's kind of talking aloud to himself about everything she's asking him to give up and all this stuff, one of his little players overhears him. And the player says to him, Coach, you love the Sox, right? But have they ever loved you back? And Ben looks at him and says, Who are you, Dr. Phil? Go hit the ball. It's a funny moment, but I'm telling you, the kid's on to something. Fill in the blank. Fix that idol that I asked you to think of earlier right in your mind's eye and ask. You love your career, but has it ever loved you back? You love your toys, your boat, your RV, your four-wheeler, but has it ever loved you back? Your golf game, has it ever loved you back? My golf game hates me. <laughs> With an unbridled, furious passion, it hates me. You love your money, but has it ever loved you back? You love your party or your politician, but have they ever loved you back? The answers to these questions show why the hardest kind of idolatry to get somebody to see in this world are the idols of romance, family, and children, because they love you back. Which brings me to massive ramification number two. Human beings are themselves created beings. What we create with our hands doesn't stack up to us, and we don't stack up to God because we're created. That means that not even other human beings deserve your worship because there's one greater than them who created them in all the wonderful, incredible, special ways that he created them. I can't say this any better than God himself does through the Holy Spirit and the inspired words of Paul in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God's made it plain. He's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly looked upon ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and careers, and money, and fill in the blank. Therefore, God gave them up to what? To the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Idols are perishable. They're fathomable. We can wrap our minds around them. And finally, we won't get to be here long, but let's look at verses 16 and 17, where we're challenged to see this. Why don't we cast down our idols because they're inanimate? They're not alive. They're just things. They have no mouths, the text says. They have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. So when we say that an object is inanimate, we mean lifeless, not able to communicate. A good example of an inanimate object is a brick. Just a brick. It just sits there. You stack stuff on it or with it. It can't speak, it can't see, it can't hear, it's not alive. 
And the text says that our, our idols are just that way. It's this last strike against idols that is most fatally given by the Lord Jesus. Because our God became flesh, living flesh. And people were healed by his touch. Brought to tears, Peter, after the denial, by a look from his eyes. Our God laid his hands upon the heads of little children as he blessed them. Our God had knees from which he washed the disciples' feet. He had eyes with which he saw well enough to even see the intentions of the heart. He had ears to listen, listening keenly enough to question and hearing the pleas of his lost people that rose up before his ears. He spoke. He spoke in Genesis to create the world in fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then he used his voice to call people back from the grave. Lazarus, come forth. Get out of there. You can only do that if you're alive. And after all the... So, Take a step back. Jesus had hands. All these other things we taught. He had hands that were what? That were pierced. Run through with spikes. And feet that were run through by the same. And a side that was punctured by a spear. And a head upon which was mashed and crammed the crown of thorns. And after all these things, speaking of breath, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. And he did what? And he breathed his last. His last, that is, until every single living tactile bit of him walked out of the grave and breathed again new life. How dare we give our lives in worship to dead and lifeless things, imaginary gods or principles or whatever, when the living God calls to us and knocks? Let's close by looking at the consequence of our decision. Verses 18 through 21. First, let's ask, what if we don't cast down our idols? Verse 18, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So the text tells us that the consequence of choosing idols over the living God, there is one, and that consequence is that we become like them, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to communicate, and dead spiritually. We are made into the image of what or who we give our worship. I'm going to say that again. We are always made into the image of whatever or whoever we worship. So if you worship Jesus, you'll be made into his image. Sanctification. You worship idols, you'll become like whatever your idol is. That's why people who have made an idol out of their self become tyrants toward other people, demanding vindictively that everyone else agree with them about whatever they say about themselves, be it their gender or age or whatever it is that they're on about. You must agree with me. Why? Because they won't say it like this, but this is what they're saying. Because I'm God. Myself is God. They've become their idol. That's why people who have made an idol out of intimacy, I'm using a, a, a wink, wink word there, become more and more hypersexualized in dress and speech and in habits. You've seen it happen. That's why parents who have made an idol out of sports become overly competitive in life in general and become that parent who gets kicked out of a little league baseball game. This is why people who have made their children into idols become like them, buddy-buddying with them instead of parenting, wearing the clothes of a teenager and getting entrenched in the myth of perpetual youth. We must cast down our idols, church. And what happens if we do? What happens if we make the right decision? What we're tempted to say is, blessing, 
health, wealth, and prosperity? No. Let's see it. Verses 19 through 21. House of Israel, bless the Lord. House of Aaron, bless the Lord. House of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So the result of the casting down of our idols is this. Don't miss it. It's worship. It's worship. Life-giving, life-sustaining worship. And worship will in turn frame and establish boundaries to a life. And it's a life where God is good whether we get any of those things or not. Because if the end result is any of those things, catch this. If the end result, at the end of all this, if we just say, what do we get? Health, wealth, and prosperity. That's the new idol. We're back at the beginning. The reward must be, if it's going to sustain us, if it's going to be something that we can build our lives around, the reward has to be God himself. And nothing else. A life rightly ordered like that is idol-proof and ready for the living God to do his thing. And it's all possible because unlike idols, church, he loves you back. No, no, better still, he loved you first. Let's pray. Israel's going to come and uh, play a little music for us. And uh, I'm going to ask that you stand with me. This is a time of reflection. Uh, it's a time to think, to meditate, to respond, to do any one of a number of different things. If you want to join our fellowship, uh, you can come forward and declare your intention to do so. And we'll get you good information about that. And we'll celebrate your, your desire, that aspiration, as Isaac called it earlier. If you want to know what it means to trust and to follow the Lord Jesus, if you realize this morning, I've given it all the idols and they've let me down time and time and time and time and again. They're emptying me. They're abusing what I give to them. And I don't want to give anything to idols anymore. I want to turn to the true and living God. I want to turn to the Lord Jesus. Just come up here and have a conversation with me. I know I'm big and intimidating looking, but I'm really not. Come and have a conversation. I'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means to follow Jesus. So as those things are happening, though, let me just encourage you to think back to the beginning of the message and call up before your mind's eye again what your answer to that question was. What if you lost it would make your life feel like it's not worth living? What if you weren't able to get your hands on it? Or just ensure that it was safe and not gone? What is it that fills you with just a, a sense of emergency, of panic, of desperation, if you were to lose that thing? And this would be a time for you to just to pray with the Lord. Ask him to help you unseat the idol that's on your heart and invite him to be seated in its place. We need help to do that. It's not easy. It's, it's, we, we want to protect our idols to the death. Why? Because they've become entrenched. And because we need to worship. And because our idols have never expected anything of us, really. We throw our resources away into them, but ultimately they've never.
required anything, but God requires something of us. So it can be a fearful thing to do. This is a moment, just a moment, for you to do some work with the Lord. Do please continue to pray for the Carmack family. Travis will have a little bit more information about that here in just a moment as he uh, closes us finally with prayer, closes our time together with prayer. Pray for Pastor John and Miss Jen and their family. He's come apart, so he doesn't come apart. So pray that he's blessed and has uninterrupted rest. He'll come back refreshed to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact, Lord, that it convicts us. It doesn't just, it's not hands off with us. Your word is not hands off. It's living and active, sharper than even a two-edged sword. So may your word, not my words, but your word have gotten in between the, the joint and the marrow, as your scripture tells us. Putting some distance between maybe someone who's here who, who hasn't been able to step back and see, oh, that's an idol in my life. Lord, the benefit of casting our idols down together as a church is that we get you. And when you are let loose, when your spirit is let loose in a people of God, in a place of God, incredible things happen. And that's our prayer, Lord. Do incredible things in and through Ridgeview as we cast down our idols and turn our eyes and our hearts and give our allegiance to you alone. That's my prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Travis, come and close us.